communicate with all of you. And tonight, we're doing something new. We're bringing you State of the Bay's very first climate special. All of tonight's segments will focus on one or more aspects of climate change, how it's impacting our lives, and in particular, what we here in the Bay Area are doing to address it. We're first going to hear from Senator Josh Becker, who represents most of San Mateo County in the northern part of Santa Clara County. And then I'll be talking to a local local venture capitalist and a tech reporter about the Bay Area's status as a hub for clean tech and whether that might be changing. We'll also hear about some exciting new clean tech startups. Finally, I'll sit down with two comedians who are using humor to highlight climate issues. But first, let's talk about climate change in the Bay Area. Why focus a whole show on this topic? Well, first, Bay Area residents are concerned about climate change, according to a Public Policy Institute of California poll from last July, 8 in 10 Californians say that climate change is either their top personal concern or among the top. And nearly 7 in 10 think that the effects of climate change have already begun, including 81% of Democrats, 73% of independents, and 45% of Republicans. But perhaps most importantly, or more importantly, California and the Bay Area specifically is ground zero for climate change solutions. The politics, culture, and business community here are strongly aligned to tackle the problem. Politically, according to that same poll I just referenced, supermajorities favor strong state action to reduce climate pollution. And we've been leading the world with our various climate goals. Bay Area legislators are at the forefront of that effort. And culturally, the Bay Area is home to some of the largest environmental nonprofits and philanthropies. People here care about environmental preservation. That's why so many of us love to live here. And business-wise, these favorable policies and cultural attitudes have led to our region being a leader on the clean technologies that the whole world is now adopting. It's no accident that the Bay Area is home to electric vehicle pioneers, top renewable energy companies, and many other climate innovators. So when it comes to climate change, the state of our Bay is strong, and we want to help shine a light on all the amazing work being done right here in the San Francisco Bay Area. So without further ado, let's hear from our first guest. He's only been in the state Senate for a short time, but he's already played a large role in moving our state's climate agenda forward. Elected in November 2020, State Senator Josh Becker represents the residents of California's 13th Senate District, which comprises most of San Mateo County and the northern part of Santa Clara County. He chairs the Senate Budget Subcommittee on Resources, Environmental Protection and Energy, as well as the Senate Subcommittee on the Clean Energy Future. So, Senator Becker, welcome to State of the Bay. Thank you. Can you hear me? Great. Well, Senator Becker, you were just elected over two years ago, and in these few years you've accomplished quite a bit, and in particular in the climate arena. So before we talk about what's on tap for this year from you, I'd love to discuss some of the bills you sponsored that have already been signed into law and what they mean for our state. And so I wanted to start with SB 68, a bill from 2021 that addressed building electrification, electric vehicle charging. wondering if you could start there. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, this bill is really about electric-ready homes and reducing uh, barriers to electrification. So it's really about three things, better information, better technology, better service. Um, and I'll talk about the first two. The third didn't quite make it through the process, and that's why we're back with another bill on that topic this year. Um, but we really want to provide guidance, educational materials to folks who are thinking about electrifying and uh, may not have a great information. Even many contractors, as you know, um, are used to doing one thing for 30 years, and they haven't yet necessarily adapted to um, being able to, um, you know, try this new approach around electrification. Uh, 
Um, and then better technology because we wanted that the, the, the California Energy Commission would use its EPIC funds, uh, which is a, um, a pool of capital that can be used to invest in early stage um, research and, and, uh, and technology in certain areas, but was not able to use previously for building decarbonization for electrification. So uh, this is going to support the development of technology to reduce the need for costly upgrades and um, rewiring and, and all of those pieces. So that was the, 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 the main uh, pieces, and then we'll be back this year on an interconnection bill. Mm-hmm. Well, I definitely want to ask you about the interconnection bill, but just to talk about some of the other bills that you also have been involved with from your previous, uh, previous year here is uh, SB 596, which focused on decarbonizing cement. And I know cement isn't something that's necessarily that people associate with climate change, but wondering if you could talk about that law. Yeah, if you read Bill Gates' book, he always says, every climate conversation, you have to ask, what about cement? Because globally, cement is uh, about 8%, between 7 and 8% of carbon emissions, just uh, cement and concrete. And you can think of cement really as a flower in the cake of concrete, really responsible for the emissions. 60% of those are process emissions just for making uh, cement, and 40% are because it's energy intensive uh, to make. So... It obviously is critical on a global uh, scale to uh, address this. So this was actually a bill that I got passed my first year. It was actually the only segment of the California economy to have a net zero uh, target at the time after we established this bill. Uh, but it's to get net zero um, by 2045 and, and 40% um, uh, below net 20, 2019 levels by 2035. And again, the goal is to help encourage new technologies. There are entrepreneurs um, there are folks out there, Carbon Bill testified at our hearing. They won the X Prize on making things out of carbon, and now heirloom and other people are actually using uh, cement and concrete to capture uh, CO2. So we actually worked, uh, interestingly, with the cement industry, and they kind of had seen the writing on the wall around climate change, and, and they realized they need to be part of the solution. So I was very proud of that effort, and, um, you know, that's one I think that can make of the national impact as, as well, hopefully a, a global impact as well. Then the last interesting piece is we actually put a border carbon adjustment, just as the EU has done and ultimately the U.S. will do when it passes some kind of price on carbon. Um, we don't want to disadvantage our own industry, say California companies are producing cement, by just importing stuff that's much more uh, carbon intensive. So we have a border carbon adjustment in there that's been quite exciting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Well, because as you mentioned, those out-of-state emissions, from cement production definitely add up as well. And the last bill I just want to ask you about from last year was 1203, which was the State of California Net Zero Operations, which you actually announced at the uh, UN Climate Conference. Can you talk about that, Bill? Yeah, I did mention it, and it got, you know, people got excited about it and said, okay, well, we got to do it now. And, um, and so I uh, had a lot of conversations with colleagues and such, and the goal there is, is a couple-fold. I mean, first, um, We've got if we have this, our state government get to net zero ten years ahead of the rest of the economy of California, and that means all of our buildings, all of our fleets, uh, all of our electricity, and um, it'll force us to uh, obviously adopt faster. It'll help bring down the cost of those technologies uh, for everyone else, and force us to uh, make those trade offs uh, if we are going to say, okay, hey, you know. There's uh, other parts that we're going to do through offsets. Okay, what are high-quality offsets that we would actually consider uh, at that time? 
So that's the uh, that's the goal of that to again move things along much faster. Mm-hmm. Well, let me move to uh, the bills this year. I know you're sponsoring seven different climate bills, and I don't think we're going to have time to cover them all. But I wanted to start with one of them that's starting to get some serious attention, which is about carbon removal. So can you tell us what you what you're sponsoring here, what you're uh, authoring? It's called the Carbon Dioxide Removal Market Development Act, or SB 308. Yeah, well, one thing, some education really has to be done uh, broadly because um, some people equate carbon removal with carbon capture, which is really about point emissions uh, from polluting entities. Um, uh, carbon capture is actually considered as part of the direct emissions reductions, the 85% of direct emissions reductions that we need to have by 2045. Um, but the carbon removal gets to the 15%. That CARB, even in our most aggressive scenarios, uh, estimates we'll have 65 million metric tons of CO2 we have to remove every year just to get to net zero, let alone uh, reduce some of the harm uh, that's already now in the atmosphere. And right now we're basically at, 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 at very, very, very little of that. So we need to create a long-term predictable market. Here, too, again, you have direct air capture. You have lots of innovation going on. I mentioned you know, folks that are uh, capturing and storing CO2 in, in concrete cement. And you also have very exciting opportunities for regenerative agriculture and nature-based solutions. But we need to create a long-term predictable market so that entrepreneurs continue to invest in uh, um, venture funds and others will fund these new technologies knowing that there's a market there. And it's a polluter-pays model. So polluters have to purchase uh, carbon removal equal to a rising percent of their GHG emissions. And um, and so it's really kind of first of its kind and something we're really excited about. Mm-hmm. And is, is there any opposition to that bill at this point? Um, well, I think the industries that um, would that would have to pay more, um, we certainly anticipate them opposing it. Um, and um, so it's not going to be an easy one, but it might be a multi-year process for that one. All right. Well, you mentioned agriculture, and I know you're also involved in a bill, SB 485, uh, called Climate Opportunities for California Cattle. Can you tell us a little bit about what those opportunities might be? Um, sure. So we had a whole briefing on this today, and um, in though it might seem uh, you know somewhat funny talking about you know cow burping and and um, and such. It's actually very serious uh, discussions. You know, um, in California, about seven or eight percent of our total emissions come from agriculture. I was in New Zealand, it's about 50%, by the way, in New Zealand, because you show how much their economy is based around uh, ag- uh, agriculture and livestock. Um, but here it's between 7 and 8%. And, um, you know, we're doing various other things to capture methane um, and, um, and reduce methane emissions. So this one's really been uh, um, the, the, the enteric fermentation, um, which is emissions from cow burping, um, is uh, it's still very significant, and we, we're not making nearly enough progress. And you may have, your listeners may have heard that there's new feed additives that are being tested, and we've kind of been at the forefront of, of testing these. But this bill is really going to help move the needle and begin to get early adoption so we can get better long-term, um, better, uh, better adoption quickly and better long-term uh, results. So um, we can talk more about how it does that, but it really um, will really help us address this piece. Again, we, we need to uh, address every piece of carbon emissions, and, um, and this is quite a significant piece that's not uh, not really addressed right now. Mm-hmm. 
Well, I also wanted to ask you about transmission, because you authored a very important proposal, SB 420, California Transmission Prioritization Act, which would simplify the approval process for priority transmission projects that we need to really scale up and deploy our our renewable energy facilities. Can you talk about this, Bill, and, and why you think it's such an important issue to address? Yeah, and everyone knows we need more transmission. You think about transmission lines as highways going into Los Angeles, say, example, or, or a any big city, and those are, you know, almost full. We need more transmission because a lot of the renewable energy project development and such is happening, say, in the Mojave or in other places, and we need to move that energy around the state. To do that, we need transmission. And these are obviously long-term, expensive projects that take, take 5, 10, uh, 15 years. And so this bill will create a priority approval process for transmission projects critical for clean energy transition and for grid reliability. So a state agency chosen by the governor would designate transmission projects that are needed to meet renewable portfolio standard requirements and reliability targets as environmental leadership projects and provide them with still sequel review, but sequel review from a state agency and provide them with a rebuttal presumption at the PUC on this economic analysis that, the, that they need to do. So, again, as you said exactly in your in your intro, it's really about that streamlining uh, piece for critical transmission projects. Got it. And then you did mention interconnection earlier, so what are your plans to address interconnection? Can you explain what that means for listeners? Sure. I mean, I'm sure, you know, people have probably heard and more experienced in your own life. And I mentioned with SB68, we were trying to address this which is when people want to electrify and it takes months and months and months for PG&E and MNC to uh, come out and, and, um, and do the upgrades necessary or actually connect up to the grid interconnection. Um, and we've had hospitals in San Mateo County that can't get connected and it's, it's, it's become a, a bigger and bigger issue. And so we need to set um, timelines and, um, and to you know, really basically say, okay, this is what needs to happen, and, and we need to make sure that uh, utilities have the resources and the staff to make it happen. And um, so that's the interconnection bill we're working on. Got it. And then finally, I, I want to ask you about the budget. All the, a lot of these measures do cost some money, and I'm just curious your take on the current budget and whether you think we have enough dollars dedicated to achieving our climate goals. Well, I'm very excited about my current perch as uh, as chair of the budget subcommittee um, that is responsible for climate, for natural resources, for water, um, and, and all that. And so, um, you know, we're very much involved in those debates, as you can imagine. And this is the governor. The governor's budget did have cuts uh, in in all of these areas. Now, um, just remember, these cuts are off of this the really massive package that we passed uh, the last couple of years of $50 billion uh, over a period of years. Um, but still, many of them are cuts that, that um, you know, in co- things like coastal resilience that we just can't uh, be making cuts of that, of those amounts right now. And some other cuts which is going to hinder our ability to, to move quickly in combating climate change as we need to do. Um, just again, just to keep in mind, we're, we're reducing emissions about 1% a year. We need to be reducing emissions about 5% a year. So um, we're doing much, much faster. And... Um, and so, you know, this is the beginning of a you know, four or five months process to get to a, a budget resolution. But um, those are all the things that I'm fighting for and that we're working on right now. Great. Well, State Senator Josh Becker, thank you so much for your leadership on climate change and for joining us on State of the Bay. Absolutely. Good to talk to you.
All right. Well, that was uh, State Senator Josh Becker representing residents of California's 13th Senate District. And coming up next on State of the Bay, we'll be looking at the Bay Area's role in fostering technology that can mitigate the effects of climate change, otherwise known as clean tech. That's right after this break. Welcome back to State of the Bay. I'm Ethan Elkind. For the second segment of our climate special, we're going to be look at, looking at the Bay Area's role in fostering clean tech. In keeping with its history as the hub for technology and startups, the Bay Area has been a center of innovation when it comes to technology that addresses climate change. Tesla, probably the country's best-known clean tech company, was founded in San Carlos in 2003 and since then, thousands of other climate-focused startups have chosen to make this area their home. But in late 2021, Tesla moved its headquarters to Austin, Texas. And with remote work gaining popularity, tech workers and some tech companies are questioning whether to stay in this region. So are these signs that the Bay Area is losing its edge? What made the Bay Area so appealing to clean tech companies in the first place? Even as some may choose to relocate elsewhere, is this still the best place for clean tech to be generated and to thrive? So to address these questions and more, I'm very pleased to be joined by Abe Yokel, managing partner and co-founder of Congruent Ventures, an early-stage investment firm focused on technologies and services designed to avert the current climate emergency. So welcome, Abe. Thank you, Ethan. Great to be here. And I also want to welcome Laura Kaladny, a tech and climate reporter with CNBC. Thanks so much for joining us, Laura. Thanks so much. Really a pleasure to be here. Great, and I appreciate both of you sticking with us as we are experiencing some technical difficulties. So I am going to be on the phone for this segment along with you. And we want you, listener, to be a part of this next conversation. So do you feel like the Bay Area is losing its edge when it comes to clean tech? What local startups? might keep the Bay Area on the clean tech map. We'd love to hear from you. You can give us a call. We're at 866-798-TALK. That's 866-798-8255. Or you can send us a message on Twitter at State of Bay. So, Laura, I wanted to start with you. I know you've been covering tech companies for a long time. Can you talk about what has made the Bay Area such a good environment for companies that are trying to address climate change? So in advance of this call, I actually reached out to a few climate tech founders and investors to ask that very question. And bar none, everybody agrees it's the talent. You can't just create that kind of talent overnight. People that learn from big tech companies, you know, or from schools like Cal State, Berkeley, Stanford, it's, you, you can't replicate that anywhere else overnight. And there also, there's sort of a willingness, you know, culturally here in the state of California, but in particular in the San Francisco Bay Area, Silicon Valley, and sort of, you know, extend to us. Hello? Yeah. <laughs> Apologies for I heard, your, your I heard phone ringing, but uh, <laughs> Laura, please, please do continue. <laughs> uh, so, old school, man. Uh, 
so yeah, I mean, it's the it's the schools and the big tech experience, but it's also a cultural acceptance. This idea that I, I might be willing to leave my cushy big tech job to try something for a mission driven startup that's really going to do something about climate problems. And there's also perhaps, unfortunately, kind of greater awareness of how urgent the climate issues are. You know, with uh, whether it's ocean levels rising and and threatening beachfront properties in Pacifica. Or whether it's, you know, everyone here who experienced Orange Sky Day, this, you know, awareness of all the wildfires and, and how much worse they've become. I think there's like an urgency, right, if you live in California and experienced any of that. That's what I'm hearing from founders and investors. And there is yeah, well, a huge ecosystem of them. It certainly makes a lot of sense. And Abe, just turning to you, I know you've been involved in the clean tech sector for many years. How have you seen the industry evolve since you first started out? Well, we could spend about 45 minutes on that, but um, in a pithy answer, I've been doing this now for about 19 years. Uh, we used to call it clean tech. Now we call it climate tech in the community. Um, there's some branding uh, around all of that. Um, but, you know, I was doing this when the first uh, run-up of interest in uh, Silicon Valley and broadly the Bay Area, you know, came in in 2007, 2008. Um, the tide receded in the venture community, at least for a while. And, uh, you know, we restarted our firm in 2017 to focus on the earliest stages of capital formation, really before kind of the bolus of, uh, of founders came back into the space and really started hacking away, largely triggered by was just mentioned around you know the sun not rising one day so mm -hmm. um, there's been a lot of ebbs and flows but in the last couple of years in particular there has been an absolute boom in general interest and awareness i think of taking you know tech talent in particular and focusing it on climate change mm -hmm. and abe do you still feel like the bay area is the place to be for climate tech as, as you as i guess we should all be branding it now um or are you starting to see that you know, we're starting to lose our edge a little bit when it comes to innovation. I wouldn't say we are losing our edge on innovation, but what I will say is that there's a general perception within the innovation economy that the Bay Area broadly has become more hostile towards, uh, you know, towards technology and innovation more broadly. Uh, and the uh, awareness and kind of institutional um, system around, you know, just employing folks in California is just more challenging. I am a barrier, you know, resident. Um, I'm not going anywhere. We're not going anywhere. About a third of our portfolio is based in the barrier of, of uh, 46 active companies, 50 historically. Um, what we have seen is that in those companies that have a high labor content uh, of, of hourly workers in particular, um, those companies have generally moved away from the barrier. It is too expensive to employ, uh, you know, hourly workers in general in the Bay Area. And so a lot of the kind of software-focused companies in our portfolio still remain in the Bay Area. Um, there are some hardware companies still here, but it's mostly design and not manufacturing. Those that actually employ a huge number of hourly workers are oftentimes out of the Bay Area. Mm -hmm. And Laura, what's your take on this? Do you feel like the Bay Area might be losing its edge, just particularly as I mentioned, you know, companies like Tesla leaving for Texas? So that's funny because Tesla maintains its engineering headquarters here in Palo Alto, right? And they're not they're not actually decreasing a headcount in California as far as I know or as far as they have revealed yet. They have, you know, this Megapack factory, which is for their energy storage systems. Anyway, that's it's interesting. Tesla is perhaps the most influential, you know, climate tech company there is, and they still have this massive presence in California despite the 
optics of having the newest U.S. factory and the largest one in this huge push in Texas. Uh, but setting aside the Tesla story for a moment, I do think that building on Abe's point, what he's observing with his portfolio is true for startup founders. Uh, the Bay Area is an expensive place to live. It's an expensive place to hire, right? Labor laws are in some regard stricter here. Uh, the the minimum you have to pay your employees, you know, it's stricter here in California than you might find elsewhere. So sometimes what you'll see is a San Francisco or otherwise California startup involved in climate tech will have a beachhead here for engineering and then they'll have operations all over the country perhaps in a place that's you know offering them uh different subsidies and incentives especially to set up manufacturing or a laboratory elsewhere i see that a lot where the tech involves manufacturing right battery plants and things like this but there's still plenty going on in san francisco and in california that's uh you know pretty exciting i mean especially i think there's uh there's a lot of innovation going on around ag tech, agriculture tech in the San Francisco Bay Area. I'd be curious to know from Abe's vantage what, um, you know, the concentration of pitches you get from California-based companies versus outside. Where are they coming from? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, Abe, that's a good question for you. What is the geographic location of where your, your pitches are coming from? You know, this may be partly a network effect, and we try to work against that. But in general, we are located in the Bay Area. Laura was covering this earlier, but there's a huge density of this innovation ecosystem. And I would say probably, we haven't run this exact analysis, anecdotally, it's probably 50 to 60% of the new company conversations we have are are California and Bay Area based. Uh, The rest come in from the rest of the country. So we're actually, you know, from kind of a funnel perspective, we're slightly uh, more oriented towards the rest of the country, but there's just a tremendous amount of, uh, of company formation. We invest sometimes when it's, you know, two people and a dog in a garage. And so we see these companies at their very earliest stages, and there is just an absolute, you know, bonanza of, of talent and company formation going on right now um, in the barrier specifically, but also broadly. Mm-hmm. Well, if you're just tuning in to join us, this is State of the Bay on local public radio, 91.7 KALW San Francisco Bay Area. I'm Ethan Elkind, and we're talking tonight with Laura Kalodny, tech and climate reporter with CNBC, and Abe Yokel from Congruent Ventures. And we're talking about the state of clean tech, climate tech here in the Bay Area. Do you think Bay Area companies will continue to lead the way when it comes to fighting climate change, or do you work for a climate tech startup that you think we should know about? We'd love it if you could email us. We're at stateofthebay at KALW.org. Or you can also send us questions on Twitter. We're at State of Bay. We're otherwise experiencing some technical challenges, so I'm calling in, which is why we're not totally sure we can accept callers, although I know we had a few people uh, calling in. So we'll go to some of the email questions we have in, in the meantime. Uh, but I wanted to ask about the, the big news from last week, which was the rapid collapse of Silicon Valley Bank. That was the bank of choice for many startups and investment firms. And the New York Times has reported that the bank had relationships with more than 1,500 companies working on technologies that are aimed at curbing global warming. So, Abe, let me just start with you on this, putting aside any exposure your firm or its partners may have had to this, uh, this bank collapse. I'm wondering how you see this incident and this bank failure impacting the climate tech startups going forward. Yeah, it's a good question, um, and of course, uh, there's a lot of time that we could spend on this. Uh, the shortest version, though, what I, what I would say about the Silicon Valley Bank teams 
and these are the teams of bankers, you know, not necessarily the leaders of the organization. Um, they were the only bank to keep a active program going um, around the climate tech community uh, when most of the others were retrenching in 2008. And so they had a kind of collective history of focusing on clean tech. They called it energy and resources for a while, now climate tech. Uh, they have been wonderful partners. They actually banked half of our, our portfolio. Um, it has been an interesting four days for us and more importantly for our founders. Um, and the real question now is, you know, we can, we can, we have, there are many wonderful people focused on this area. There are groups that will help out on a commercial banking side. There are groups that will help out on kind of the venture debt side, which is, you know, specific debt product um, that Silicon Valley Bank was very good at. And there are groups that will do project finance, which is kind of large-scale capital to support, you know, renewables projects. There are no groups that do all three of those things well. And so there will be an impact on the climate community. I think they, uh, they banked something like where they invested from a project perspective 62% of the community solar uh, business. Which means these are—I mean, these are literally solar projects in your community that uh, the output is sold to local residents. It's a very clean, very local way to do things. Um, and there's a big, you know, financing gap in that ecosystem now that is going to take quite a while to fill. Wow! So there, it is a real climate story as well as a financial one. Laura Kolodny from CNBC. What are you hearing about the impact of the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank on climate tech startups? I think there's a little—a little relief today with news that the FDIC has, you know, backstopped and acted to protect depositors to an extent, but that Silicon Valley Bank failure has likely hit climate tech founders much harder than other kind of segments. Um, most climate startups build in atoms and not just, you know, bits and bytes. I, I was, uh, I reached out to a bunch of climate tech investors and Seth Bannon at 50 Years BC was pointing this out that a lot of climate tech startups, they're more likely to have financing beyond equity, like equipment financing, venture debt, et cetera, as it was, was just describing. And if that financing was Silicon Valley Bank, there's a good chance those founders, you know, were also required to exclusively bank with Silicon Valley Bank, which means they don't have their cash distributed all over the place. And it's going to take time to figure out uh, where else they can go, especially for more credit cash or loans in the future. And it's just, uh, you know, it's one of these uh, things where everyone's sort of finding their way now. And unfortunately, uh, climate tech founders of, of climate tech companies, I mean, instead of spending their time on recruiting or pushing forward their science, life cycle assessments, talking to new customers and all of this, they are going to be spending their time on treasury management, banking, figuring out the money piece. And that's, that's mm -hmm. very challenging. Yeah, well, so we'll have to see how this story unfolds specifically for the uh, private sector effort to, to mitigate climate uh, change pollution. And I want to talk about some of the startups in this sector, but before we do that, and when we say clean tech or climate tech, it encompasses so many different areas. And so, Laura, I was hoping you could just do a quick rundown of which sectors of the clean tech, climate tech world are getting the most focus right now, and of these, are any of them more concentrated in the Bay Area in particular? Uh, I haven't done I haven't done like a thorough uh, you know population study of this so but I could tell you that right there's been so much support for scaling up electrification and uh, it's I mean it's the legacy of Tesla I think in California but there's a lot of focus on 
how do we bring, you know, the like I heard uh, Senator Becker alluding to this a little bit. How do we bring things like heat pumps, induction stovetops, and even electric vehicles to more people more affordably? How do we make that all accessible? Um, there are, I will also say, sorry, I keep coming back to Tesla. It's, I cover the company so closely that it's really takes up a lot of my mind, right? But there are a lot of former, there are a lot of entrepreneurs who had experience at companies like Tesla that were early success stories um, from a market perspective in like, quote unquote, clean tech, now climate tech, or, you know, clean transportation that have stuck around and they're doing things here in the state. Um, you were talking about carbon cap carbon capture ideas and uh, carbon reduction ideas with, with uh, Josh Becker. There's one company founded by an ex-Tesla entrepreneur, Josh Santos, at Noya Labs that's working on that. Um, here in the state of California, carbon capture and related types of companies can get some credits out of the state. Uh, they're called low-carbon fuel standard credits. Uh, and, you know, so that's in a way like, I think California is trying to build up as a great place to build a carbon capture company. Um, California is also the salad bowl state, and you will find no shortage of climate tech startups that are like working on tech to help with food production, reforestation, making irrigation more efficient, seed banking, all of this reducing food waste, um, and also things like alternative ingredients for food that, you know, has just a lower impact for the same nutritional and flavor profile that you're going to get from traditional farming. And that's, mm -hmm. that's partly supported by the UC system and uh, something called QB3, where, where early stage synthetic biology and other types of startups that work on material science or chemical innovation can get like a lab bench, you know, at these world-class facilities. So there's a lot of that support here in San Francisco, but I think you should ask Abe on the like hard numbers because They'll be a lot more analytical about it. Yeah, well, Abe, let me uh, let me turn to you on that. So we've got Abe Yokel, managing partner and co-founder of Congruent Ventures, and I'm sure you've got some startups you're investing in in a number of the sectors that Laura just mentioned. Can you talk about some that you're really excited that have a potential to make a, a really significant impact? You know, one of the fun things about what we're doing is that um, it's also one of the challenges, which is we have to decarbonize every aspect of our economy. So... We're talking about how we move, how we eat, how we shelter, how we produce uh, goods and services, how we deliver them. And so the fun of that is that um, there is innovation everywhere and climate is everywhere. The challenge, of course, is that we have a huge task in front of us. You know, picking up something that Laura just said, um, I think we have four separate companies founded by uh, Tesla and SpaceX alumni. Um, it, it is a huge, you know, set of folks, uh, people call them tech mafias, um, who, who tend to um, move quickly, do good things, and it's a unique, unique skill set to build things in hardware. So what we have generally seen is we have seen a lot of offshoots um, from the, the Tesla community. Um, there are others as well. Uh, there's, a, there's a whole host of companies from Nest founders as well. Um, there's a whole, folks, a whole set of folks from Google as well. Um, they had a very strong ethos of kind of doing good in the world in the early days. And, uh, you know, a lot of folks have kind of spun out and, and done that. So I, I always like to, you know, talk about our favorite children. I'm happy to talk about some of those specifics. Uh, and sure starting fun too, like, uh, as you're saying that, you, you reminded me there are, like, climate-focused funds. Like, Eclipse Ventures does a lot that's focused on making manufacturing more efficient. And one of their founding partners is an ex-Tesla exec, Greg Reichow. And At One Ventures has... Uh, 
was one of the founders is an ex Googler, um, Tom Chi, and they do nothing but climate tech too. So I'm sure you know it's venture investors all know each other. But <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> to me, that's that's also fascinating. Like this is still a state where the funds start up, and that tends to mm-hmm. perpetuate the climate, the support for climate innovation in the state and in San Francisco. Yeah, it's sort of a, a positive feedback loop, and it you know it sounds like uh, Abe is definitely part of that. Well, Abe, you mentioned that you know these are like describing your favorite children, so it can be tough to maybe pick out a few. But why don't we talk about some that are uh, based on are working on carbon removal? Because that was something that we talked with Senator Becker about. So I'm curious if there's any uh, companies that you wanted to mention working on carbon removal. Yeah, sure. I mean, so carbon removal, I, I, I couldn't actually hear what what Senator Becker was saying um, uh, on the line, but um, it is a something that we will need to deal with to address our climate challenges over, over time. The challenge systemically and structurally is that with today's technology, it is too expensive by dollar and by energy to actually remove carbon from the air in any practical way without a large um, subsidy from the government, which it sounds like um, Senator Becker was working on. Um, Once you kind of pull through and get those costs down, it gets quite interesting. One of the fundamental kind of chemistry challenges of that is that you are literally pulling carbon dioxide in very dilute form from the air, and that is very energy intensive. So, uh, and that is is underlying what, what, uh, what is expensive. We have one investment in this space. We would like to make more, but have really been focused on that cost equation called Ed Carbon, happened to be founded by um, a couple folks, one of whom was ex-Tesla SpaceX, also, <laughs> I'm sorry, ex-Tesla uh, and SolarCity, Ben uh, mm-hmm. Tarbell. And they are focused on ocean carbon capture. The idea there effectively is working in, with chemistry in aqueous form and water form is much more energetically easy than it is um, in air form. Uh, and they have a process by which they actually use the effluent, so the output of desalination plants, uh, using an electrochemical process. So you apply electricity, which you can generate cleanly, to separate out effectively acids and bases. Um, as the ocean has acidified um, through absorption of carbon dioxide, uh, it has allowed the ability to actually effectively dump uh, baking soda, if you will, back into the ocean. Um, through this process, and the output is an acid that you can use in industrial processes. So this is a very effective, very cheap way to mitigate uh, climate challenges by doing a form of um, carbon dioxide removal. It's not direct air capture, but it is carbon dioxide removal, where you are taking that uh, that baking soda on one hand um, and reversing ocean acidification, and on the other hand, producing an industrial chemical that you can use for sale. Mm. And that does seem like one of the keys with carbon removal is having that, that product that you could you can sell. And Laura, I wanted to ask you about carbon removal as well. If there's any particular startups that in your reporting you've come across, or just uh, any interesting kind of dynamics around carbon removal that uh, that you wanted to talk about. It's really interesting. I feel like we're so early with carbon capture and carbon removal. Uh, you do see these promising companies like Noya and Charm Industrial are two that are based out here and and the one in Abe's portfolio. Uh, but I honestly get more pumped up about companies that are trying to help us do more with less. Like I was just speaking with Aporva, the CEO of WeaveGrid, and they are providing software and analytics that help, you know, basically utilities to 
make the most use of renewable and clean energy when there's a demand spike. It's, you know, really the idea is making sure the grid is also ready for all these electric vehicles and other electricity demands that come with trying to reduce tailpipe emissions or emissions from the, uh, you know, appliances at home. Um, I think about companies that are doing more with more with what we already have, and I love those. And I also love material science companies that are trying to make use of something natural where we used to have some, something synthetic, like I wrote recently for CNBC.com about a company called Cruise Foam uh, down in Santa Cruz. Don't have to twist my arm to move down there for a clean tech job, right? Um, but <laughs> it's, they're, they're making a, like a, an alternative to polystyrene styro- styrofoam out of something called chitin, which is, you know, a material that's naturally found in the ocean. And literally, you could toss this foam in the ocean, and it's like, it's the same kind of stuff you'd find in shrimp shells or, like, insect wings. And that idea of basically replacing what we have with something else we already have, but that doesn't do environmental harm, that is very appealing to me. I I, I very much understand why investors are drawn to uh putting money into and technically developing and de-risking things like carbon capture, but I, I tend to focus a little bit more on what's already here, you know, instead of what's, uh, what's coming like 20 years down the line. Mm-hmm. Well, let me ask you both, we just have a few minutes left, about the recent passage of the Inflation Reduction Act that uh, moved through Congress last year and that uh, President Biden signed. And I'm curious what impact you've seen this legislation have or what impact you anticipated having on the pace of our investments in these different uh, climate fighting technologies. So, Abe, let me start with you on that question. Yeah, sure. That's an easy one. The shortest answer is that it is going to have and already has had a massive impact on kind of what we do, where it is crowding in capital into the space. It's going to have an even greater impact over the course of the next couple of years. Maybe as a couple quick examples, you know, tying that together, another Tesla, um, ex-Tesla uh, uh, employee founded a company called Span.io. And this is a modern electrical panel that is installed in your home um, that allows you to more easily install storage, but also electrify your home fully. So quick, easy, cheap way to effectively put in capacity in your panel that will allow you not to actually do a main service upgrade, so increase your power capacity, which is usually prohibitively expensive. Why am I talking about that company? For low and moderate income uh, individuals and families, the IRA contains portions that will literally pay for the entire sub-panel if you do it for an electrification project, and will also pay for heat pumps, will also pay for other things like EV chargers. And so for the first time, you have effectively a tech-enabled solution um, that is built by an ex-Tesla you know, a founder uh, that is able to address you know, some very real, very costly problems of home electrification. Without it, mm-hmm. you know, that is going to be actually very challenging um, from an overall cost perspective. And I could go down the list. You know, something like... Forty percent of our portfolio companies, um, we invest not expecting any subsidies. The IRA is going to create a really interesting market for about 40 percent of those very directly uh, and accelerate the adoption of these technologies and solutions. Mm-hmm. Well, Abe, that's really fascinating to hear just about the impact the law is having. And just very briefly, are there any other policies that would really be high on your list of what would be needed to 
to continue to really scale up these these climate technology companies as quickly as possible. Yeah, I would say the single biggest one, um, and this is less about the innovation economy and more just about actually decarbonizing our power grid, is permitting. So the biggest challenge now, um, if you look at it structurally, is that the the fundamental economics of you know, installing a large-scale solar system, um, a utility-scale solar system, for example, are very, very good, way better than doing coal, way better than doing even natural gas. Um, the challenge is you can't get the power out. It's transmission. You mm-hmm. have to build these new, oftentimes hideous wires across oftentimes protected land, and very well-meaning environmental you know, laws effectively are preventing the construction of, uh, of these projects. And we cannot decarbonize our entire grid unless we allow these transmission projects to get done. So there is real need for permitting design. It is complicated. Um, because there are environmental impacts of construction in remote areas, uh, but we cannot decarbonize our, our energy envelope without doing that. Mm-hmm. Well, really, uh, really important to know, and I know that was a big issue for Senator Becker as well, so hopefully he's on the case, at least here in California. Laura, we just got a few seconds left, so last uh, word from you. What do you see as sort of big policy needs now going forward to really scale up these, uh, these climate technology startups? Oh, I will not weigh in. I will maintain my reporterly objectivity. I have <laughs> strong opinions, but it's it's not mine to opine on. You know. Thank you. Absolutely. Well, what what do you hear? What do you hear from the the company leaders that you talk to? You know what? I'll tell you. I think that for the climate tech startups, they're actually very very worried about uh, like the visas. You know, they need they need access to the talent they want. People need to be. People who come here to study want to stay and build companies. They need a path to be able to do that and greater security to do that and to hire who they want. That is something I do hear a lot from climate tech startups that they're concerned about the visas. Yeah, well, really uh, fascinating to hear about all of this, but unfortunately we're going to have to leave it there. So Laura Kolodny, tech and climate reporter with CNBC and Abe Yokel, managing partner and co-founder of Congress Ventures. Thank you both so much for coming on State of the Bay. Really fascinating discussion. Thanks for Thanks having for me. Take care. All right. Thank you. And coming up after the break, I'm going to sit down with two comedians who are using humor to draw attention to climate change. So stay with us. Welcome back to State of the Day. I'm Ethan Elkind. Climate change is no laughing matter, or is it? Our next guest would argue that humor can be a valuable tool in educating about climate change, and they have the chops to back it up. So Brad Einstein and Kyle Niemer are members of the inaugural climate comedy cohort created by Generation 180 and the Center for Media and Social Impact. They've served as the artists in residence at Crater Lake and Glacier National Parks, creating comedy nature hybrid mini documentaries and they're here tonight to tell us about their work and hopefully make us laugh a little bit although no pressure so welcome to state of the bay brad and kyle hello all right well glad you guys can join us i think most people might be surprised to hear that there are comedians focusing on climate change so can you tell our listeners how it is that you both became members of a climate comedy cohort? 
yes, of course. Well, Brad and I uh, have been creating climate-based comedy for the last eight years, and we were part of the inaugural 2022 Climate Comedy Cohort uh, put on by Generation 180 in the Center for Media and Social Impact. Uh, and we were very, very lucky to be a part of a uh, nine-member cohort, and Brad and myself were the, the two members of that. Uh, and we just uh, like to use comedy as a way to, uh, as a conduit, because comedy is a universal language. I mean, you got to laugh to keep from crying. <laughs> That's absolutely right. And what kind of reaction do you get from audiences? I mean, how does the climate material play with them? Uh, yeah, well, also, I'd like to say my, my partner, Brad, I think is still in the waiting room, and I'd love to have him come into this as well. Um, but I think that, uh, like many of the members on, on the show tonight, I feel like the ideas of climate change are no longer um, this back-of-the-room kind of ideal. I think um, people are coming online to the fact that climate change is something that's happening. I mean, look at all the rain and snow in California right now. And so we like to use comedy as a way to use the awe of the natural world as a place to start a conversation to get people to think about things, to get people to laugh about them. And you can already see this on a lot of the famous talk. Kyle, I think we just lost you for a second. Are you there? I'm not sure if Kyle is, but Brad is. Hi. I can just complete his sentence at that would be better all right so who do we have on now because i know the two of you have been trying to get in yeah hi this is brad uh yeah all right brad well great great to have you and hopefully kyle can can join us but do we have kyle on the line well here all right i'm sorry is kyle there yes hi okay great well so the two of you served as artists and residents in two of our country's national parks how did that come about Well, I can hear Brad on the Zoom. Well, we, um, all national parks in the country have these artists and residency programs. Uh, if you're an artist, usually uh, they, they take applications in the winter. And so we've been applying for a number of years, and we were very fortunate enough to get a federal stamp um, that comedy is indeed an art form. Usually they've taken a lot of painters and poets and musical uh, acts. And we were the first federally recognized comedians to the programs where we got to serve, as you said, in Crater Lake, uh, Glacier National Park, and just recently in the Tongass National Forest uh, in southeastern Alaska. Mm -hmm. That's great. Well, listen, we've got a clip uh, from one of your routines, so I, I want to play that uh, for, uh, for listeners. So let's go ahead and, and uh, listen to the clip. You are glowing! 
maybe we should go our separate ways. I don't know where you're gonna go, but I'm gonna be fine. Santa's gonna get a groove back. I'm gonna have like a three million year long rebound relationship with some cockroaches. <laughs> Well, so uh, I'm curious, Brad or Kyle, if you want to just uh, summarize what uh, you know, how uh, what it's like been to do this climate comedy, and how you how you were drawn to doing this kind of comedy. Yeah, absolutely. We um, we started in Chicago doing political satire. I was touring uh, with the Second City at the time, and Kyle and I got together. Kyle did a lot of outdoor filmmaking, and we decided rather than using uh, our talents to uh, kind of skewer things we hated, we wanted to see what it felt like to, uh, in, uh, to work in service of something that we loved, which was the natural world. And through that, um, we've just learned so much and grown so much. And especially when it comes to the climate crisis, uh, we've noticed that the, uh, comedy is often said to equal tragedy plus time. And we have an abundance of tragedy and a, a, a very short supply of time. So we figured mm -hmm. we might as well get to the comedy before uh, our species turns into a punchline. <laughs> well, I really appreciate that you guys have taken on uh, this subject to, to you know, bring the humor to light. And before I let you go, I just wanted to ask if you had any words of advice to aspiring comedians who might want to break into this area of comedy. Yes, I, I, I would absolutely say that it is so important. And I think um, the climate crisis is, uh, when it comes to communication, like one of the most important subject matters of our time and so much of comedy is kind of dismantling power structures and it's really important right now to kind of dismantle the things that we thought we have been taught uh, when it comes to uh, the climate crisis case in point the last two guests uh, were talking quite a bit about uh, carbon capture something we learned in the climate comedy cohort was created by Shell and ExxonMobil to greenwash their own destructive behavior and allow serious people like them to talk about it, even as they live and work in a concrete graveyard that was once one of the most carbon-dense ecosystems on the planet. And that's just absolutely wild. I don't have a punchline yet. I promise we will by the next morning. But, like, being able to dismantle and punch up to things like that is really fascinating, really exciting. Uh, Laura and Abe, if you ever want to chat, I would love to do so. You guys seem really interesting. Also, Thank let's you. plant some bogs. I think that would be some pretty effective carbon capturing just all right. Well, uh, I just want to thank you guys so much for coming on the show, sharing your climate comedy. I know you're going to be on tour in California, so we'll put some of those dates on our website. But unfortunately, that's all we have, the, all, all the time we have right now. And I want to thank Brad Einstein and Kyle Niemer, members of the inaugural Climate Comedy Cohort, for coming on. Thank you both so much. Thank hey, you. Thank you. All right. Well, that's State of the Bay this week. Thank you for bearing with our technical challenges, but I want to thank all of our guests and listeners this evening for being part of the conversation. If you have any questions or comments about anything you heard tonight, let us know. You can email us at stateofthebay at org. Make sure to join us next week to hear Bay Area Sikh violinist Rajinder, who's going to be on the show. And tonight's show was produced by Chris Nooney, and Eric Jansen was our board operator. I'm Ethan Elkind. Good night, and thanks so much for listening.
funded, so we need you to help make programming you deserve. You can donate money or stocks or used cars. And if you want to ensure generations of listeners can continue to learn from and enjoy KELW, please consider including us and the audiences we serve in a bequest. Make it happen by contacting our advancement director, John Carroll. He's at John, that's J-O-N, at KELW.org. Thank you. 7 o'clock, KLW, San Francisco Bay Area. Time now for your call. 